0: Over the years, he had done over 20 years of helping people and end of life, really said, boiled down to four things that matter most. Eleven words in just four sentences. If families can come to these words, had the best deaths. And that was, please forgive me. I forgive you. Thank you. And I love you.
1: Hey, welcome to The Kindling Fire. My name is Troy Mangum. St. Ignatius said the glory of God is man fully alive. Jesus said, it is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit. This podcast is here to bring God glory through you becoming fully alive and you bearing much fruit or having powerful results in your life. I believe you can use your unique gifts and talents to change the world. If you listen to this show and read our blogs, you will be inspired to take your own journey of faith to become a man or woman who is fully alive, making an impact in the world around you. I interview people that I think are awesome, that are doing that today to inspire and to challenge you. You can do the same. Let's get rolling. Uh, this week on the Kindling Fire podcast, uh, I've got Mark Philbrick. I have known Mark for six or seven years, I mm-hmm. think. Yeah, uh, He is one of the uh, key guys in this small group I keep bringing up around Zoe Ministries and a men's group I've been a part of. Mark is one of the pillars in that group, so thanks for coming. It's glad Pockets. to do it. So, uh, I'm fired up about it. <laughs> so, so Mark and I have had uh, many fun conversations through the years at uh, Heart of a Warrior retreats mm-hmm. and just different settings that we've been in. Uh, So tell us a little bit about you know what you what you do in your your day job, and then we can
0: talk about. Sure, Um, I'm a registered nurse. I've now been a a nurse for 42 years, and um, I'm a nurse practitioner. I've been a FNP for 35 years, and uh, currently I'm director of education and volunteer services at Transitions Life Care, we're a hospice and palliative care program here in Raleigh. Uh, We care for about 13, 1400 patients a day who are facing end of life. And my role here is basically to educate, train and develop people in this field from doctors, nurses, social workers, chaplains, continuing to expand their knowledge and education and also reach healthcare professionals in the community about end of life care.
1: Yeah, so you have a very unique perspective um, in in the times that I've heard you speak uh, not a lot of people are around, uh, death mm-hmm. <laughs> and you're around, uh, or, or life or, you know, mm-hmm. just kind of these times, obviously transition care mm-hmm. is, you know, kind of transitioning from life to, to end of life. And, uh, y- you always have a very, um, kind of poignant perspective, yeah. uh, just because of it, kind of what you've
0: been around. How long have you been working in this industry? Um, I got into hospice care in 2005, uh, and it was completely, it found me and mm. I had been a nurse 30 years, knew nothing about this, although I'd worked around death and had been head nurse of trauma surgery at Duke. So I've seen a lot of death, but it came home to roost in 2004 when my father and brother got cancer at the same time. Mm. And, uh. In a matter of a very short period of time, my dad moved into my home and with the help of my three teenage kids, we took care of him for three months until he passed away. And then a week after that, I found out one of my brothers, who was five years older than I, had uh, bladder cancer and he was in the final stages of his disease yeah. and lasted two months and was on hospice two weeks. And After caring for them, it changed my life and it just I knew that this is what I needed to be doing is paying it forward for other people to learn how to do this well.
1: Yeah, and, and so now you've been at that now for...
0: 12, 13
1: years. Yeah, mm-hmm. so um, uh, that to me is a story of, okay, something tragic happened, mm-hmm. but God somehow
0: brought a redemption. Absolutely. Um, it has been uh, life-changing for me, and I know for my family, and for the people I help. It's uh, I never would have envisioned myself doing this kind of work. But now I would not envision myself doing anything else. So, um, so I want to, I want you to act
1: like, uh, we're talking to a group of people, Mm -hmm. uh, and you said that you have incorporated this story about forgiveness, which Mm -hmm. I've heard, which I think it's it's a funny story. Mm Uh, so, um, and you grew up in
0: Cape Cod, right? That's right. Yes. Yep. Yeah. So you, a true bust, a true uh, Massachusetts. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I um, was born and raised on Cape Cod, and youngest of seven boys in my family. Uh, two of my brothers had died as young children before I was born, so I never knew. Right. So the five of us were raised together on Cape Cod, and. Um, yeah. The story you're asking about really came to me a couple of years ago in reading a book called Four Things That Matter Most at End of Life by Dr. Ira Biok, who was mm-hmm. at the time the head of palliative care and hospice at Dartmouth Medical Center. And he had gone through a similar thing as I had with his father. He was an emergency room doctor. His father got cancer and he helped care for his father through that journey and ended up changing his career into hospice. And over the years he'd done over 20 years of helping people and end of life really said boiled down to four things that matter most 11 words and just four sentences. If families can come to these words had the best deaths. And that was please forgive me. I forgive you. Thank you. And I love you. Mm. So the core of this was that to have a good death, is to come to terms with forgiveness, gratitude, and love to those who are close to you. Yeah. And um, I reflected on that and started teaching that book to other healthcare providers, What Matters Most. And the story of forgiveness, when I was putting this together, it reminded me when I was uh, in high school, I think I was 16 at the time, and, It was that part of my life where I was experimenting with things, and I decided I was going to sell some of my friends and acquaintances what they thought to be marijuana, which was actually oregano. (laughs) And uh, so I put together $10 bags, and I sold it to three guys, um, and then had lost track of them. And 10 years later at my high school, I became a, a believer in God when I was 17. Yeah. And um, by that time I had already left school. I went to nursing school and then moved out of the area, moved to North Carolina. Yeah. And 10 years passed, but those people were on my heart that I needed to make amends to. Hmm. And at my 10 year high school reunion, I finally returned home and I knew pretty much where I would find them. I knew which bar stools at which bars, I could find these guys. Yeah. So I went to the first one, I said hello, sat next to him at the bar, and said, you know, when we were 16, I, I ripped you off, and uh, it was a really stupid thing to do, and I'm sorry for it, and I want to make amends, and I put $10 on the bar and slid it over to him. And He said, F you, and slid the $10 back. And uh, <laughs> it's like, hey man, you know, it's been ten years. <laughs> I don't know why I want, it's funny. You know, <laughs> I want to to say I'm sorry, I never should have done this and I want to make sure I make it right. And he said, I don't want your money and he tossed it aside. Now did he know what it was about? Oh absolutely. He knew instantly.
1: <laughs> but that what's so funny and sad is that there are people that are just like like the doc they have a doctorate in grudges. Yeah. They just are like it blew my
0: mind. I mean, we're (laughs) he wasn't Italian, was he? Just just Uh, I don't think so. Okay, I was just curious. But the part of that was, (laughs) you know, it was he instantly knew who I was, what this was about. Mm. Um, and I couldn't make him forgive me. Yeah, I could just do my side of it. So I left the ten bucks and walked out. I don't know if the bartender picked it up or if it went in his pocket. Who knows? I just walked away. Yeah. Um, the second guy was a guy who actually worked with me, you know, and uh, I was familiar with, and I sold it to him and he took it and had a party with his cousins or something. And when, um, uh, when I met with him and apologized and tried to make amends, he says, oh, that was, you know, that was, you know, we were all stupid then and no big deal. And he laughed about it and he took the 10 bucks. And the third guy, when I tracked him down, he was still a pothead. And uh, I told him the story, apologized, gave him the 10 bucks. and says, hey, Mark, that's cool. I don't remember that at all. And uh, I was probably high at the time, so thanks a lot. So the, <laughs> the moral of the story was that I freed myself from that guilt and making amends. Each one of those people took it differently. So I had no control over that how people respond, yeah. um, but I know I can move on, and that mm-hmm. guy who didn't take the money is still carrying that with him. Yeah. It's, so, have you found that um, it, it
1: takes a lot of courage uh, to do that? Uh, it, you probably didn't feel like it took courage, but I mean, it can be a little bit like, okay, I was stupid. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've got to take ownership of this, mm-hmm. um, and it, cause I see a lot of people get stuck in that forgiveness window of, yeah. um, well there, it's not going to be made right. Right. They're not going to, you know, it's not going to, it's not going to heal it. So mm-hmm. why bother? So but I think
0: the key to this is asking, you know, the four things that matter most. Yeah. The first is please forgive me. Yeah reconciling and you know as Jesus talked about hey if you're going to the altar to offer a gift and your brother has something against you Mm. leave your gift and be reconciled to your brother Mm. then come and give your gift so it's not just about it also includes I need to forgive you for sinning against me but I need to ask forgiveness for people I've wronged yeah Um, so if you get right on your side then your heart's in a position to offer forgiveness to others. Yeah. Well,
1: let's just keep walking down. Right. So, so that's, that's the, would you please forgive me? So mm-hmm. what about the, um, you know, I forgive you? Yeah. Uh, so ha- ha- how, have you, how have you seen that kind of play out with either in your own life or other people's mm-hmm. lives? Uh, you know.
0: Oh, you know, I think that if it, we're all human, so every one of us is going to hurt each other and yeah. have things to forgive. Um, I went through some really horrific things in my marriage back in 2004, prior to my father and brother becoming yeah. terminally ill, and um, part of this was pretty much lost everything. And my, um, uh, my wife and I got separated, we've since been restored, but through that period of time, I literally lost everything I owned lost my home lost my job then lost brother and father and um there were certain things where it finally came to me the most radical thing in my mind that jesus ever said and that's when he's on the cross looking down at people saying father forgive them they don't know what they're doing Mm. so accepting in my own life that i've done things i need forgiveness for yeah but you know my wife yeah accepting the fact um there were things that she did which i needed to forgive that i don't think she knew what she was doing at the time yeah and some of it was my own neglect of meeting her needs right that she sought needs elsewhere yeah yeah so um i think if we we're real with ourselves the whole act of forgiveness is realizing um We've done things that we shouldn't have done and God forgives us, so he expects us. In fact, in the Lord's Prayer, in the Sermon on the Mount, after He the disciples say, Jesus teach us to pray. He gives them the Lord's Prayer, the very next verse he says, So if you forgive others their trespasses, God will forgive you. If you do not forgive others their sins, God cannot forgive you. That's pretty radical. Yeah. So love may be conditional, but according to that Forgiveness isn't. You need to forgive in order to be forgiven. Yeah. It's uh, at least that's my understanding of it right now. Yeah.
1: And did you did you feel like um, that was a, a one off? That was a process because you know so forgiveness can be sort of like
0: yeah, yeah. So you understand where I'm going with right? That, so. Well, you know, someone told a joke once that we're referred to as living sacrifices because we keep crawling off the altar. You know, it's like you can be right with God and then crawl off and crawl back on. Yeah. And so it's always a process. You know, it's funny, you started by saying that uh, not many people are around dying people all the time. Well, the reality is if you're sitting across from somebody, you're sitting across from a dying person. Right. You know, when I first came here to work at hospice, one of the guys told me, do you realize that life is a sexually transmitted terminal condition? (laughs) if we're living (laughs) we're dying um and so you sound like woody allen well my favorite quote from woody allen i start every presentation i do an overview of end of life care for professionals my first slide is a picture of woody allen he says i'm not afraid to die i just don't want to be there when it happens (laughs) you know it's uh the reality is the reality is most of us it's not the fear of death yeah you know, we believe there's something in this life after death right. but it's the fear of the unknown the fear of suffering the fear of what's going to happen to me what's going to happen to my family my loved ones mm-hmm. and it's that uh that sense of dread i think that keeps people like the three monkeys hear no evil see no evil speak no evil right don't want to talk about it don't want to hear it don't right. want to discuss it so the most inevitable part of your life is your death mm. but we're by the fact that we we fear it so we ignore it
1: yeah yeah i I think that one of the things that i love about following jesus is that uh, this is going to sound flippant and i probably shouldn't say it this way but i'm going to say it anyway is you can laugh at the face of death Mm -hmm. in the sense that um you know that scripture that says death where is your sting Mm -hmm. where is your victory you know there's this sense of you know the resurrected lord that i serve says death you are not the final say mm-hmm. to my family mm-hmm. to like and for me one of the things that has been so you know that i've come to realize more and more as i've gotten older is the lord has those that i care for mm-hmm. versus me kind of inserting myself in saying well without me you know, they're in a bad situation. Mm-hmm. Whereas the Lord's like, no, I, I got them. Mm-hmm. I got them. I'm bigger than you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you're, you're actually important, but mm-hmm. probably less important than you think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's just like this, this sense of, uh, I've got it. Mm-hmm.
0: You know, from the Lord. Uh, well, I, I also think that one of the great truths of Scripture and of other religions is one of our roles and goals in life is to die before we die.
1: What do you mean by
0: that? Dying into ourself, dying to the illusion that this is it here on earth, mm. that, um, you know, if we become so attached to things mm. that are temporal, we forget that this isn't all it is. Yeah. You know, that we're here passing through Mm. And uh, I even read today in scriptures said, God knows we are but dust. You know, that ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Something that came to me. Um, I have church in the hot tub at my house, where I sit in the hot tub <laughs> uh, sometimes with friends, sometimes by myself. And one of the things we—it's a good place to have church. It is. Right? <laughs> and um, one of the things I was contemplating is how much division there is in our culture and our world with this matters that matters these people matter these people don't matter all that controversy and I started to think about you know we're so much focused on the differences that we have between us and other people or other religions even with our own faith i mean hundreds of different denominations and i began to think you know being a a nurse and a scientist i love science is what are we really made of in this tangible world hmm. we're made of atoms and atomic particles and subatomic particles if you break it down everything this table this microphone you me the wall it's all the same stuff Mm. protons electrons neutrons yeah and that it's just in different combinations Mm. it can't be created by us and it can't be destroyed by us Mm. and the most abundant thing in the universe is space You know, one thing that uh, when I was in nursing school at Carolina, uh, nurses have tons of required classes in order to be a nurse. So we had two electives in the entire time that we could take classes. And one I took was drama and the other one was astronomy because it was the only thing that fit in my schedule. And in in astronomy, I was an Eagle Scout, so I, I knew astronomy, knew the stars, that type of thing. But in studying it, thinking about how vast space is. We talk in simple terms like light years. And the nearest star from us, which is our sun, the next nearest one is three and a half light years away. Now, three and a half light years, if you were traveling a million miles a day, which is probably three times faster than our fastest satellite, we sent a space probe out to go outside of our solar system. It took 23 years, at a million miles a day, to get to the end of our solar system. The next closest thing to us will take 40,000 years for that traveling at a million miles a day. That is incredible. 40,000 years. So in other words, if you go back to when Jesus was born, It's only 5% of the way to the next closest thing to us in space, which is three and a half light years. And they now, visibly, with the Hubble Space Scope, have estimated that the visible universe is 90 million light years across. It's beyond fathomable. And in between all that is space. But then take a microscope and go the other direction the space between a proton and an electron and an atom is farther than the earth to the sun if you were to shrink it down. And then you take hundreds of billions of those. I mean, just the human brain has a hundred million neurons, yeah. each of which are made up of multiple molecules and atoms. The, the, the more I know, the less I know. Yeah. you just start to create
1: you start to be aware that this world that God has created it testifies to him right is being a creator and it being vast and more vast than than, than a lot that we can even fathom
0: And what does that have to do with anything it's just that for me um you know realizing that I don't need to understand it anymore yeah you know and uh I memorized 1 Corinthians 13, and one of those verses in there talks about we know in part and we prophesy in part, Yeah. but when perfection comes, the imperfect will disappear, and that we only know a little, <laughs> but when we're face-to-face, we will know as we are known. Hmm. So I've really come to a lot of peace knowing that I don't know and I don't need to know, but someday I will. Yeah. So... So
1: you've walked a journey that not a lot of people have walked um, in the sense of of kind of like the valley, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and um, when we met, I was in a very dark valley. And, mm-hmm. and when I heard your valley story, I was like, I, I just don't even compare. <laughs> I was just like, wow. Um, can you contrast yourself between uh, sort of post what God did in your life on the other side of the valley versus before? Mm-hmm. I mean, do you have it? Can you just talk about that a little bit? Because yeah, yeah. I think that's important for, for for people to understand there is another side. Because a lot of people, when they go down, they're just like, this is it. This
0: right. is the end. I think what helped me in, in what I call a year of loss, where I went through losses of a, a job, a marriage, um, loved ones, finances, any sense of security was—I had the advantage that I had lived to see people in third-world countries. Hmm. Gave me perspective. Um, I started traveling as a young kid. I mean, even when I was 15, my brother Jeff and I traveled to Italy. I traveled to Russia when I was a senior in high school. Yeah. But then I got to travel to Ecuador. I had traveled in the mountains of the Andes, I've been in the Amazon, I went to Africa, I've seen people in destitute situations and literally hundreds of orphans. I was in a slum in Kenya and hundreds of kids started coming up and say, how are you? How are you? And realizing how happy these kids were and completely destitute, you know, thousands of AIDS orphans. Um, so you know whatever problem i faced i always contrasted that with the reality of this isn't as bad as some people have it Mm. um i had no idea how i was going to emerge out of the losses that i went through Um, my buddy joe stone his wife actually was uh made me a prescription she said when it gets to the point where you are so down what you need is a cold beer and a hot tub (laughs) and that's what i did (laughs) i sat in my tub with a cold beer and i cried um and just cried out to god you know what next or or you know i surrender was what it really boiled down to you know when you got nothing left you got nothing to lose yeah and for me that was finally realizing how little i've been a man in control for a long time you know, yeah I've you run ran businesses i've run yeah. i've run people i've run business i've run life and then realized that all of it is an illusion you yeah. know ultimately we don't control any of it yeah so i think that whole point of surrender and then seeing how god restored all that was truly mind-boggling to give you an example um how I now can look back and see how God was in control. I was at the point where um, in October 2004, I came into work on a Friday and the president and the vice president of the company I was working for came to my office, which never happened. They flew down from Washington and they said, Mark, we're um, wanting to consolidate operations. We're going to close down this office. I was national director of a nurse staffing company, probably at, 20, 30 people working for me at the time. And uh, they said, we need you to relocate to Washington. And I said, I'm sorry, guys, I got three kids in high school. You know, I'm, my marriage is, you know, struggling. And um, they said, well, we anticipated that. And the president pulled a check out from his pocket and gave me a three month severance check. And he said, then this is your last day. Hmm. I was like, oh, man, now what? That was on a Friday. That Monday, I got a call from my father out of the blue, 89, living independently in Florida, says, Mark, I need your help. And my dad never asked for help. This is a guy who had been you know, his own man his whole life, fought in World War II, ran his own company, outlived two wives, And in the course of one weekend, that that weekend, he went from having a pizza party on Friday with his friends, Saturday couldn't get out of bed, Sunday became incontinent, and Monday said, Mark, I need your help. He flew up the next day. I took him to Duke Hospital. He was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer with metastasis to the brain, and we started hospice that day. He was with me three months. I didn't have to work for three months because I had a severance check for three months. God provided all of that. Yeah. I took care of my helped uh, when my brother was dying, went to visit him before he died. He died two months after my dad, when I was at his funeral. After the funeral, I got a call from UNC School of Nursing. It was the dean of the nursing school said, Mark, I heard that uh, you may be available for work and you come for an interview tomorrow. I flew back from Cape Cod, went to UNC interviewed with about 12 professors and the Dean of the nursing school. And she said, would you like a job? And I said, doing what? She says, I want you as interim Dean of academic affairs. The second highest job in the nursing school had never applied. Hadn't even sent a resume, didn't even know how they knew I was available. And I said, when do you want me to start? She said, can you start tomorrow?
1: Oh, my goodness.
0: Now. I'd never worked in academia and now I told her I wanted to be a hospice nurse and that I was willing to do it for a short-term contract. She said, we'll take you as long as we can get you. I called Duke and interviewed for a weekend nursing job at the hospice home, said I really wanted to do hospice work. They interviewed me, they said, you could be our boss's boss, you're way overqualified. And I said, so what does that mean? They said, you need to interview with the executive director. So i met with the executive director who happened to be a nurse i'd worked with 25 years before at duke when we were real nurses at the bedside (laughs) and she said why do you want to do this and i told her the story of my, my dad and my brother And i said i knew this is what i needed to do and she said we don't have a job now but we'll give you one in six months you got to go through six months of grief counseling before you can provide support to other people i did that the day I left UNC on a Friday, that following Monday, I was director of Duke Hospice. Had never worked in hospice before. And I was the director of Duke Hospice the next Monday. Now, is that not a God thing? Yeah. But
1: in the midst of all of that, it's not, life's not easy. No. But,
0: you know, but it was God just, was still showing up. God was just showing up. And I think, you know, my parents were always examples of hard work. Hmm. You know, I grew up, my mom raised us, and she was an arthritic. She was crippled since her 20s. She raised seven kids on crutches. Wow. And didn't complain. And my dad, they ran a restaurant business in the summertime. My mom did the payroll. She hired the people. She managed the the paper side of the business and my dad did the other side of the business. Yeah. And my mom's, to this day, I still hear her telling me, you know, do unto others as you have them do unto you. That was her thing. You got to live by the golden rule. Yeah. And don't complain.
1: The, the thing that, uh, that's so funny is you're, uh, you strike, you do not strike me as a sober guy. Oh. You never have. Yeah. You've always been joking. You've always been yeah, messing around. That. You're uh-huh. always making these little little comments. <laughs> and 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 it, you're always kind of bringing this levity yeah, to yeah. to situations. Get you know your storyline in your uh-huh. life is is not one that a lot of people would would desire for because it's been kind of a, a, a tough road. Mm-hmm. Um, how have you kept?
0: Your joy. How have you kept laughter in your life? Mm. I don't know. I think I've always sort of been a a funny guy and try to see the funny side of things. Okay. (laughs) So, um, you know, and growing up, we always, you know, when you're the youngest of five brothers, you have to have a a wit, you know, because physically (laughs) I was always being dominated, but I had a wicked mouth, so I could, uh, you know, use that as my tool to, to defend myself. Yeah, yeah. Um, and my father, all of us, I think, were raised with a, with a sense of humor. Yeah. Um, and my dad had a wicked wit. Yeah. You know, I've told you some of his stories. I can remember as a kid, we all had to start working at age 12 in the restaurant business. Yeah. Um, our restaurant was on the beach in Orleans on Cape Cod, which was an incredibly busy place. We served between two and 3,000 people a day at our restaurant. That is incredible a lot of people. It is a lot of people. And, um, insane. and so we, at early age, we were expected to be part of the team at age 12. Yeah. And that meant you only had to work 48 hours a week because of child labor loss until we were 15 and then he could work us longer. So, uh, we were literally at the beach from nine in the morning until nine at night, but legally he could only work us 48 hours a week. Um, and so it was a busy place. It was a no nonsense place. My dad ran a tight ship. My mom was the soft side of the business. But, um, you know, I can. A, a funny story that shows you the wit is there was a lady at the counter. It was takeout seafood and yeah. hot dogs, hamburgers, that kind of thing. And this lady was being extremely obnoxious, typical New Yorker, impatient. She was yelling at the waitress. She says, What's the biggest, cheapest thing you have here? And my dad stopped in his tracks. He said, "Excuse me, what did you say?" She says, "What's the biggest, cheapest thing you have here?" He said, "Customers like you, lady." <laughs> she says, "Well, I never." He says, "I bet you have," and he just walked away. Next, you know, <laughs> and we had we had this guy. My mom, to give you an example, we had this guy that would taunt the waitresses all summer long. And he was like a muscle beach kind of guy, and he'd always have like a speedo in his tan. He'd come up trying to impress the girls. And the last day of the summer, we'd, we'd be open from Memorial Day to Labor Day. And on Labor Day, one of the girls comes up and says to my mom, Mrs. Filbert, can we spill a little milkshake on this guy? She said, make it strawberry. <laughs> and So they mixed up a milkshake, and as this waitress walked by this guy, she just tossed this milkshake all over him. And you know, so it's always like we had to entertain ourselves somehow. Yeah. But my folks were, um, they were, uh, they were pretty sharp.
1: So all right, well, I tell you what, Mark. So we, we, I want to wrap this up, but
0: uh, you know, one other funny story. Yeah.
1: Okay, that's what I was going to ask. Do you have one other thing
0: you would like to share? So. My dad, when uh, well, my mom died when I was 21, and my dad was a workaholic, and he worked like. 84 hours a week during the summer in the restaurant. And when the summer was over, he built houses in the winter on Cape Cod. Yeah. When my mom passed away, it was like, that was it. He didn't want to work anymore. And I never thought I'd see my dad retire. But my mom was 58 when she died. My dad was just 60. Um, and he decided he was gonna travel the country. So he bought an Airstream trailer, 30 foot Airstream, and he wore out two Suburbans going all around the country in his trailer. He was crossing Texas and he got pulled over by a state trooper in Texas. And then he says, do you have any idea how fast you're going? My dad said, hell, I had to be doing at least 80. And The guy says, you're doing 85 and a 55 pulling a trailer. My dad looked at the cop, he says, son, I'm an old man and this is a big state. If I drive 55, I'll be dead before I get out of Texas. (laughs) (laughs) The cop laughed and told him to take it easy. That's a a great way to get in. He made all 50 states, but he wore out two suburbans in the process.
1: Oh, that's that's a good story. I like that story. (laughs) So, Mark, thank you for coming on. Hey, thanks for listening to the podcast. I hope you were encouraged. If you would like more information about The Kindling Fire, just go to thekindlingfire.com. You know, the podcast is only one-fourth of all the cool stuff we've got going on. Uh, We have a seven-day devotional called Become a Sign and a Wonder. It's a video devotional that I send directly to your phone through Facebook Messenger. Uh, You can find out information about that at thekindlingfire.com slash wonder. Uh, Also, guests that come on the show are blogging every single week that I get to deliver directly to your inbox or through Facebook Messenger. Go to the website. You can find more information there and the blog. And the last thing we have is for entrepreneurs or anybody else that is starting something. uh, It's called the 30-Day Firestarter Challenge. Uh, There you can... You'll get 30-second videos for 30 days of inspirational quotes and scriptures that will really help get your fire started as you are trying to create and start something um, in your life. Thank you so much, and be awesome.